All right, if you have a Bible, if you can open up to Genesis chapter 7. As you're getting there, I just want to give one more reminder about the West Wing project. And um, if there is anybody that knows they would be available to help paint the next two weeks, could I just get a show of hands from anybody that might be willing to meet me over here and help paint? It's always good when a seven-footer says yes. Thank you, Dad. Um, All right. Um, Thank you. Um, Can any of you who are willing to help paint just come see me so I can get you all on a group email and um, we'll get that project started. But what a blast it's going to be, and I'm sure they're going to be blessed. We're going to be looking at two chapters of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. It'll be projected up behind me. Um, This is part two of three of our mini-series a new hope on the narrative of Noah. So I'm sure most of you have heard the saying sometimes before that it is always darkest before the dawn. Well, as we look at part two of three of the Noah narrative, part of a larger series of Genesis 1 through 12 called Beginnings, we're going to be looking at the darkness before the dawn this morning. I shared with you last week that Sunday's message shadowed the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday pretty directly. If you remember, I have this slide up there that in chapter 6 of Genesis, I'm looking at the Noah narrative, we saw man's wickedness. We saw God's judgment on that wickedness. We saw God raising up a redeemer to redeem his people from that wickedness. We saw God raising up a means of salvation through that Redeemer and God creating a new covenant to save his people from future judgment. And we see each of those elements during Holy Week and all that led up to it. Just to show you kind of an apples and apples comparison, I think I have a slide on that too. Um, Because of man's wickedness, Jesus came to reconcile a fallen and rebellious race of people back to God. A just God had to judge that wickedness, but in his kindness, he allowed the fullness of wrath and judgment to fall upon Jesus, making him, as Romans says, both the just and the justifier of those who would call on Christ. God raised up a greater than Noah redeemer to go out into the void. God allowed his son to go to the cross, God's ark, to be able to carry a people who would trust in him for salvation. And God created a new covenant that we celebrate when we partake of communion, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. So the passage this morning reminds me of a thought that I've always wondered about. What must the Saturday have been like between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? I love to use my imagination. God's blessed me with a vivid imagination, and I like to use it in reading of Scripture. And and we see so much about that Holy Week. We see so much about the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see so much about the cross and all of the events of the cross. It's particularly graphic in Luke's gospel. Um, We see him buried Um, And we see so much about the resurrection of our Lord, both in the Gospels and in the Epistles. But what must it have felt like to wake up on that Saturday after Jesus was in the grave? You know, people have gone all in on this whole Jesus thing. And I guarantee you, 
that they were, I mean, they were, he was even mocked. If you're really Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, come down off of that cross. And I guarantee you they were hoping against hope. This can't be it. This cannot be the way the story ends. What kind of dark cloud must there have been over everybody's thoughts and over everybody's hearts? What kind of darkness must there have been before the dawning of Jesus breaking forth from the tomb on that Easter Sunday that we celebrate next week. Well, chapter 6 shows us the pronouncement of judgment, and chapter 9 that we're going to look at the week after Easter described the recommissioning to go and be fruitful and multiply, a commission that was issued um, in the beginning, and a commission that was actually issued by the resurrected Christ. Now that I've saved you, go forth, be fruitful, multiply, make disciples. But chapters 7 and 8 describe the darkness before the dawn, and as chapter 8 comes to an end, we begin to see the beginning flashes of sunlight breaking through on the horizon. But first, the main point carried over from the previous chapter has got to be the darkness itself. Look at me at verse, uh, with me at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, go in to the ark, you and all of your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, and also the male and the female to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and for 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Keep that phrase in the back of your mind. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his daughter's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of the clean animals and the animals that are not clean and the birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah and God, as God had commanded Noah, again, keep that phrase in the back of your mind, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So I want to start off by being very clear about the nature of this darkness. Man willfully brought this darkness upon themselves. 1 Peter 3.20, we looked at it last week. It's Peter's usage and, and giving gospel fulfillment to this Noah narrative. says that God waited patiently during the days of Noah. Think about that statement. This was not God's first line of discipline. It's not like people stepped out of line and God said, that's it, I'm done with this place. I'm going to send a flood to destroy all of humanity. It says that God was patient in the days of Noah. So that means that even though God was patient, 
and long-suffering, they continued to push the envelope of God's patience over and over and over. Most of the first chapter, uh, first half of chapter 6 showed how they continued to openly and high-handedly defy God. And with that in mind, it amazes me that of all of the attributes that Peter could have picked to talk about God, that he chooses the attributes of patience in the days of Noah. How much have they, how much have they been pushing on God's patience to bring him to this point? And a practical point regarding the attribute of God's patience and long-suffering. There are too many Christians who presume upon God's patience. I just want to lay that out for you right at the start. God's patience and mercy run so, so deep. I think that God, uh, it shows that he's perfectly patient, that he was patient with a sinner like me. Paul said that in the beginning of 1 Timothy. He, He said, God did all of this to demonstrate his perfect patience and saving a sinner like myself. But woe to the person who has begun to shape their lifestyle upon presuming on God for his patience. Sometimes when I see Christians just diving headlong into folly, I think to myself that I fear for that person. They know better. And they're openly choosing to openly defy God and rebel while presuming that God will continue to remain patient. Sometimes I don't just actually wonder. I'll actually grab that person and say it. That's my job. I would be a poor pastor if I allowed fear of man to not wake you up and say something. I've asked people, you keep running and you keep living in open rebellion. Even though you know better, what are you going to do once you got to the point where you have presumed upon God too far for his patience? What are you going to do when instead of patience, he brings pruning? And instead of giving up that idol willfully to him, he has to pry it from your fingers. If you are walking in self-created darkness... Why would you be surprised that walking in darkness leads to people falling and stumbling? Do you hear me on that? I mean, if you've chosen, you've said, hey, I know that this should not be my lifestyle. I know that this should not be the direction that my life takes, but I'm choosing it anyway. I'm going to turn off the lights. I'm going to walk in darkness. Why would you be surprised when you stumble and have your inevitable fall. So keep that in mind as we continue to talk about the darkness before the dawn, that this was a darkness made out of man's own choosing. I'm going to put that there because I keep grabbing for the wrong water bottle. Another thing to keep in mind about the nature of this darkness is this was not an easy decision for God. And we're told back in 6.8 in the previous chapter, that this whole thing grieved the heart of God. Isn't that mind-blowing? To think that God, the all-knowing, the omniscient God, who knew how this was going to unfold, that it still grieved the heart of him. God 
understand this, that he is not a detached and dispassionate being. We don't worship a deist God. We worship a God that has a heart, and his heart was broken by this. The flood has been turned into such a story that we've actually made it a tame story when there's nothing tame about this at all. I don't know how much we think about the absolute carnage of the flood. I remember reading a book a few years back, and it had a quote um, that was done by some university psychology department, and it said that people are more psychologically impacted by hearing that something tragic happened to their neighbor than they are about hearing about millions of people dying on the other side of the world. Think about that. Um, It's because when it's their neighbor, they personalize it. These aren't just stats. These aren't just numbers of people from some faraway place. This is something that hits me in the feels. This is something personal. And when we remove ourselves thousands of years from the event that took place, it can begin to be read like a children's story. But make no mistake about it, this was a destructive force unlike this world has ever seen and unlike this world will see up until the end. I'll spare you the gory detail, but use your imagination when you read stuff like this. And think of a major city. Think of New York City and the water just rising and rising and rising to the top where the tallest buildings in all of the cities are covered. Those cities filled with millions and millions of people. And then it not just being New York City, but it being every single city around the world. Multiply that by every place, everywhere. And even though it grieved the heart of God, I want you to think about this. This is, this, this is just, this is our God. Even though it grieved the heart of God, he did it anyway because he is a just and holy God and he knew that there was no other way. You know what verse it makes me think of? It makes me think of Isaiah 53.10 where it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. This verse is really kind of a thesis statement of what's on the minds and hearts of churches throughout Holy Week and hopefully not just then either. This grieved the heart of God when he had to allow the crushing of his son. Yet it was his will. Some translations even say he was pleased to crush him. Why? Why do we gather in remembrance of this gruesome event? Because of the second part of the verse. That Jesus made an offering for our guilt so that through it we might be able to become his offspring. So what specifics do we see about the darkness of the times before the dawn? We see in verse 4 that it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights. God said that he would blot out every living thing from the surface of the ground in 7-4. 
It says in verse 11 of chapter 7 that the fountains of the deep were opened along with the windows of heaven. So you had waters coming from beneath and you had waters coming from above making this tumultuous storm unlike the world has ever seen. The waters flooded the earth to the point where even the highest mountain, it says in verse 19, were covered in 15 cubits deep. Imagine having to swim down 30 feet to get to the top of Mount Everest. That's, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever gone out and been able to stare at the majestic Rockies, but imagine them so covered that you actually have to put on a dive suit and swim downward to be able to get to them. And then it says in verses 21 through 22 that all flesh died. And it repeats it twice. And I've told you guys all along in this foundational book of Genesis especially that when God repeats things, he does so for emphasis to get our attention. And then it says that the waters remained at that level for five months in verse 24. I took a good chunk of time to be able to describe the darkness to you this morning because almost the entire chapter of chapter 7 is devoted to the flood. But Noah was a beacon in this world in the midst of the flood, in the midst of the darkness, repeating a theme that we've already seen and will continue to see throughout the book of Genesis and not only the book of Genesis, but throughout the entire Bible that God has always and always will preserve a faithful remnant to himself. We see Seth after Abel's death by the hands of Cain. We see Noah versus the entire world. We see Abraham called out of Ur of the Chaldees. We see Joseph sent the head to Egypt through no desire of his own to help preserve the faithful remnant of God's people that would come down there during the famine. Elijah telling the Lord as he stood on the top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 19 that I'm alone. I'm the only one here that is still following you. And God says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 more who have yet to bow their knee to Baal. Or how about Josiah finding the lost book of the law and reading it when God's law had been lost to all peoples? Or how about John the Baptist being the lone voice crying out in the wilderness, make way the way of the Lord? Or how about our Savior when he hung on the cross with all of the crowds who followed him looking for handouts, now abandoning him during his moment of need? How about the true church, the true gospel-trusting truth of God's word-preaching, disciple-making, missional-living, one-anothering church of today? That is God's faithful remnant. And you know what? Sometimes it feels like we are a really small remnant. I've seen statistics that have said that Ocean County and Monmouth County are as low as 2.7% evangelical. That would put us in what's considered an unreached people group by some missionary magazines. I mean, that's mind-blowing. It's easy to feel like we're a small remnant. It must have felt that way for Noah. It must have felt that way for Elijah. It must have felt that way for Jesus. Jesus. 
when he was denied by even his closest friends. But God has always been faithful to protect a faithful remnant. And one more thing before moving on. You may be that faithful remnant in your family, in your school, at your work. And it's an awesome responsibility to take on. If that's you, can I just encourage you this morning, don't give up because it's difficult. Continue to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and allow the body of Christ, the church, to lift up your arms when you are feeling weary about having to be a lone voice in the midst of the darkness. So what is it about Noah that makes him stand out as a faithful remnant or a flicker of light in this dark world? First and foremost, everything else is based on this. Noah walked with God, as we saw back in chapter 6. Think about that. In verse 9 of chapter 6, it clearly pointed out, just as Enoch before him in chapter 5, in chapter 6, it says Noah walked with God during a time when literally nobody was walking with God. And I'm using that term literally the way that it's supposed to be used, not the way that it's used in colloquialisms today where people say literally when they should be saying figuratively, one of those things that drive me nuts. He was literally the only light still shining in the midst of the darkness. And I've had jobs where I was the only Christian I remember working at a, a high-end uh, men's clothing store, and I was the only heterosexual male that worked there. And, and everybody called me reverend, and I had somebody come up to me and say, how does it feel as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant to know that you're the affirmative action hire in this place? <laughs> um, <laughs> I laughed. I thought it was pretty snappy when he said that to me. Um, I give credit to those of you who daily put on your cape and you go to a job or to a school where you are the lone nut job walking with Jesus, where you're the only Jesus freak in the room, where you're gossiped about and even marginalized by others for letting that light shine. Anything else we see about Noah that makes him stand out, all stems from here, that Noah walked with God. He's only able to shine the light because he has been with the one who is light. And like Moses, when he was in the presence of God on top of the mountain, his face shined with that Shekinah glory because he had been in the presence of light itself. The most obvious thing that made Noah's light shine that we see in chapter 7 is that Noah obeyed in the midst of the darkness. Three times it says in chapter 7, God commanded and Noah obeyed all that the Lord commanded you. We see that in verse 4 or verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. We see that in verse 9 where it says that God 
commanded, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. We see it in verses 15 and 16 where God commands and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. It's a special kind of obedience that's able to obey in the midst of blinding darkness. It's the kind of obedience that was demonstrated by our Savior when he prayed, Lord, if it be possible, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done. The flip side of that point is that Noah was not looking at the darkness as an excuse to not obey. Some people have become downright soft when it comes to resist the darkness and it shall flee. Some of you have just straight up turtled up and you're just sitting there in the fetal position just hoping that, you know what, maybe if I just ignore it and just sit here turtled up, I won't have to do anything and it will go away. When God is telling you, fight! Stop turtling up like you're defeated! You worship the one who came and crushed the head of the serpent. You don't need to be defeated by one who's already been condemned and crushed. Look, some things can take a lot of grace. Some things can take a lot of clinging to come out of patterns of sin. But I'm going to tell you a truth, and I know it's truth because God's the one who said it. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man, and whenever you are tempted, he will always provide a way out. Another thing that makes Noah stand out as a faithful remnant was not letting, it's not fun, keeping him from obey. Out of all the prophets, I think that probably only Hosea or John the Baptist had a calling to where they could commiserate with the depth of misery of Noah's calling. But chapter 2 calls him uh, of uh, Second Peter, rather, calls him a preacher of righteousness. During a time when everybody's thoughts were always continually bent on evil, as it said back in chapter 6 of Genesis. Think of the absurdity of building a boat during this time and hoarding the animals. Uh, watching the only world he ever knew begin to crumble around him. None of this is fun. Yet in all of this, God, Noah did as God commanded him. Never let it's not fun or it's not easy become an excuse for disobedience. I think of the day that we celebrate today that we know as Palm Sunday. Jesus knew that as he set upon that donkey and rode into Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal entry, he knew what he was getting himself into. He had to endure being praised by a bunch of phonies who would be mocking him only days later. But he continued to obey, keeping the glory of his father in mind. Another thing that made Noah stand out as a faithful remnant is he did not allow his circumstances to keep him from obeying. How easy it could have been to have said, uh, God, I can't do this because I'm not a shipbuilder. In fact, there are no shipbuilders that I could even go to to apprentice because there are no ships yet on the earth. How easy it could have been. That's like not sharing the gospel 
with a neighbor because being accepted in your neighborhood's social status is more important than eternity. Or not volunteering to serve because, hey, I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I don't know how to talk to teens. I'm too busy with a life that's filled with a bunch of stuff that God never told me to fill it with anyway. Or I would just obey God if he would just do this. How about this? How about we flip that one over on its side and you try obeying regardless of whether God does the thing that you think that God should do to lead you to obedience. And then if he does, then you continue to obey in gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done. I think that's a lot closer to the biblical mark. Another thing that we see is he did not let the things that came at him by surprise give him an excuse for not obeying. And I'm sure that this whole flood thing did not fit into Noah's five-year plan. I don't know how many of you were deeply impacted by Hurricane Sandy, but when you were planning out your year in 2012, did you have something written into the planner, home destroyed, trying to get the next several of my lives, uh, years of my life put back together? Look, plans are not a bad thing, but God always has the right to supersede your plans. So if we feel entitled to disobedience in response to being blindsided by something that was a surprise, you are missing God in the process. When God changes things, for those who are called according to his purposes, he always does so for his glory and your good. Do you understand that? That when he changes things, for those of you who are called according to your purpose, to his purpose, that he always does it for his glory and for your good. Can we all agree that there is power in obedience in the midst of darkness? Have I been able to get that point across? Amen. Thank you. One of my favorite stories in church history happened during one of the darkest times of church history and the darkest times in the history of all of Western civilization. During the third century, Roman persecution against Christians was at its all-time highest point. The Roman emperor Diocletian made a decree that anyone who did not renounce Jesus and burn incense in his name and say that Caesar is Lord would be put to death and any Roman citizen had the right to put that person to death. Romans would cheer the genocide of Christians under the reign of Diocletian. During that time, a severe plague started to go throughout the Roman Empire and people were fleeing and running for the hills and running for their life. It doesn't get much darker than persecution, genocide, and a plague, does it? Like if I was to say, hey, let's all concoct what a dark situation would be, I don't think you're going to come up with something that's going to be too much darker than genocide, persecution, and a plague all going on at once. So as people were fleeing for their lives, one of the early church fathers made the decision to stay in Rome and care for those who were sick and dying of the plague, to care for those 
who had formerly been persecuting them. And the only reason that they were not persecuting them now is because they were too weak to do so. This man risked his life, gave his life. He ended up dying from the plague. And when he was told to get out of there because the plague was rapidly approaching, he said in the Latin, bring it on. Oh, I get shivers each time I hear that story because he knew that that darkness was the perfect backdrop to be able to shine the light of Christ. But this was not only true 2,000 years ago. There is power when you stand in obedience in the midst of an increasingly perverse and wicked culture. When you choose to plow a counterculture rather than allowing groupthink to be able to water down the ability to actually use your mind and water down your faith in Christ for the sake of following a herd that doesn't even know that it's plunging itself to its own destruction. I especially think it's powerful when young people make a choice to stand on the gospel and obey God in the face of the pressures of a growing anti-Christian culture. Our young people growing up today have way more avenues to draw their hearts away from obedience to Christ than any other generation that's preceded them. Our young people have had to see perverse things they tell me these things, the things that they see that they walk down the hallways of their schools, things that I couldn't have even imagined that I went to school in the 90s. It's not like it was all that long ago, but perverse things being called normal and to be able to say that they're not normal, you are called bigoted. Young people growing up in a generation that assumes that Christians are bigots who define themselves by what they stand against rather than what they stand for. And keep in mind, they did not create this mess. It's like the great poet Tupac Shakur said, we were given this world. We didn't make it, so keep your head up. We handed them this world. Our generations, every time you want to talk smack about the young people's Generation of entitlement. Remember that you're the one that created the culture that you handed to them. So, out of all of those reasons, that's why I look up to our young people so much when they choose to make the choice to live a life that is not compromised. And we are blessed to have a church that's full of examples of that. Can we actually hear it for our young people who are making a stand for Christ in the midst of this generation? Just want you to, we see you, 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 and it encourages us to press on to maturity in Christ. But the power to obey and be light in the darkness doesn't come from us. Man, it doesn't come from looking at Noah and saying, how can I be like Noah? Though he was a fine example of what it meant to be a follower of God. The way that we understand how to live as lights in the midst of the darkness is fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ's obedience in the midst of darkness. 
We love to quote Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where we're told, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and encumbrance that so easily ensnares us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We love to quote that part. But often I hear people stop before it gets to verse 4 where it says, In your struggle of sin, you have not yet quite resisted to the point of shedding blood, have you? Jesus has. That's why we fix our eyes on him. Then in chapter 8, we see the water begin to recede and the dove and the olive branch being signs that darkness is passing and new life is beginning. Look with me at chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock. They were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were closed, and the rains in the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth. Continually at the end of 150 days, the water had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of the day, 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark. With him, and he waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove in the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Look, a dove carrying an olive branch may not sound like that much of a big deal to you, but it's a huge deal because of what it represents. This olive branch is a sign that the new creation has begun. The old has gone. The new is coming. That will be our text for Easter Sunday, by the way. The dove was bringing back a piece of the new creation in its beak. This little sprig of an olive branch was the first sign of light in the midst of a long, long season of darkness. Up until now, it had been insane storms. The waters continued to remain. And understand this, Noah sent out the birds because he didn't know when the darkness was going to end. He was sitting there perched above all of this water perched even above the mountains, and he didn't know when this was going to begin to return to some sense of normalcy, if it was going to return to some sense of normalcy. Imagine how dejected he must have been the first two times he sent out one of these birds only having to remain in the place of uncertainty. And then this dove comes back with a little olive branch in its beak. This is how I picture Noah when the dove returns. If you're familiar with the scene, he's trying to build fire. Pay close attention to the look on his face.
<laughs> All right, you can cut it. It's only a little olive leaf. That's how I picture Noah. When he sees that bird come back and he thinks, you know, just jumping up and down like a nut. So excited. It's only a little olive leaf, just like it was just a little spark in that movie. But it's not about the leaf or the spark. It's about seeing hope on the horizon when everything had previously seemed hopeless. It's about signs of a new creation when the old creation had been wiped away. The little tiny leaf represents hope in the midst of darkness. Do not ever underestimate the power of hope when everything seems bleak. I want to personalize this before we close. We've been talking a lot about the darkness. I want to make this personal for anyone who's been walking through a dark valley. There are a few things as difficult as being stuck in a prolonged darkness with no glimmer of hope on the horizon. For the chronically ill person who continues to search for answers. For the person who has been betrayed or hurt in all of their relationships to begin to step out and be vulnerable and to begin to trust again. For the person stuck in addictions that you have tried time and time again only to fall back into defeat once again. For the person who's doing their best to walk with God but the results look like that of Job's life. And in the midst of the flood, sometimes all you can see is the flood. When you're in the darkness, sometimes all you can see is the darkness. Look, it's hard to keep looking for a cure when you're chronically ill or chronically in pain. It's hard to want to continue to fight with insurance companies and continue to try the next thing. It's tough to be vulnerable and to try your hand at relationships when you've been disappointed and let down time and time again. It's hard to muster up the strength to fight an addiction when you've already tried so many times and you have an inner voice telling you, why even bother? You know it's going to end up like every other time that you've tried and you're just going to be a failure again. Sometimes it's hard to follow God when you're getting crushed like Job, even though you're doing all that you can to be faithful. So I want to ask you, is there something small, a small glimmer, an olive leaf, a little spark like we just saw that you can cling to in the midst of this darkness that can make you say, yeah, I've tried a thousand times. I'm going to try a thousand and one today. Yeah, I've stumbled and fallen and I'm going to get back up today. Yeah, I've been hurt every time I've tried to invest in relationships, so I'm going to try to invest in new relationships today. As Zechariah 4.10 says, a day of small things, who would despise it? An olive leaf may sound like a small thing, but a glimmer of light can be everything when you don't even have small things to hope in. If you're in that darkness, fix your eyes on Jesus. And brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to hope, for hope does not disappoint, as it tells us in Romans. Some people are afraid to hope again because they don't want to be disappointed again. Brothers and sisters, that's no way to live your life. If you're stuck in a rut like that, let that little olive leaf of hope do what God intended for it to do and let your hope increase as you fix your eyes on Jesus. And the rest of the chapter is how Noah began to take that ray of hope and he worshipped. 
in verses 20 through 22, we see that he built an altar and began to sacrifice that of the clean animals, realizing the doom that God had just saved him from when he had boarded the ark. He had walked with God. He worshipped. What greater thing can you do when you realize the doom that God had saved us from when he took that which we deserved and he gave you life in response. As God is calling you out of darkness and putting your feet on terra firma, on solid ground like he did here, there's only one appropriate response, to worship him with all your might, to be like David as he was dancing before the ark with all of his might. Man, I... I, when I realize where I was going and how God arrested me in the midst of it and saved me and gave me hope and put my feet on solid ground, I just think, oh God, I want to dance like David. I want to be the one who is just getting funky out in front of your presence. And not just worship. And but he worshiped with a clean animal. His sacrifice was not like that of the worship of Cain. Let me ask you, um, sometimes people will ask me, why did God bring seven pairs of the clean animals and only two pairs of the unclean? And the answer is he gave you the extra to worship. Let me ask you, if all of a sudden you woke up with an abundance, would you keep it for yourself? Or would you worship? Think about it. If anyone had reasons to hide things, it was Noah. The whole world consisted of what he had in his boat. So he could have easily said, God, I, I can't tithe. I can't worship. I can't give. All I've got is what I've got, and I don't got no more. Um, well, even though he had a shortage of funds, shortage of funds don't keep you from worshiping. You see, because we don't confine our worship to a surplus when we realize that God owns everything that we have anyway and that it was always his to begin with. Has God given you an abundance? You know what? I don't even need to answer that question. Why has God given you an abundance? Do you see God's purpose in giving you an abundance as an opportunity to use it for worship? All that you already have is his. Do not let lack of surplus keep you from trusting God with that which he's entrusted to you. So a couple application questions. First of all, by way of reminder... We are the faithful remnant that proves that God will not utterly destroy all things again. He's coming back for his church someday. Only this time he won't be seated on a donkey when he rides in. Second, our calling is the same as Noah's, to be obedient in the midst of a dark world. Do not let excuses rob you of the joy of obedience and intimacy with Christ. Number three, there is hope for all who are stuck in the darkness. And I want to read this passage as I close from Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, for his going out is as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us as showers. 
in the midst of the rains of the water of the earth. He's saying as sure as you can be that the sun will come up tomorrow is how sure you can be that God will be faithful to his people. So fourth and final, let hope lead you to worship. And let's practice that as we close. Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. As we sang before, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus, you are my life. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.